<clears throat> oh yeah, that was definitely a can of LaCroix. We're on a mission from God. Oh my God, okay, it's happening. All right, Buster, what do you do? The first 2,000 miles of my motorcycle trip were absolutely f***ing awful. I can't emphasize enough how awful the first 2,000 miles of this trip were. Seriously, I'm not exaggerating. They were incredibly hard, arduous, you might even say. Yeah, we're bringing out the big guns with the big words to try to convey the big pain that it was to ride 2,000 miles on my motorcycle between Colorado and California. So first of all, I was getting started late in the season. I started in November. My bike was parked at my parents' house in Colorado, which meant that the temperatures were rapidly decreasing each day, and you could look at the weather forecast and see the temperatures decrease from 50 to 40 to 30 average temperatures all day. It just so happens that the day I woke up, barely slept at all, woke up, grabbed my phone, first thing I do, that's another podcast for another time on addiction, but grabbed my phone, opened the weather forecast for my area, and just stared at the fact that at 10 a.m., four or five hours after sunrise, it was still set to be 29 degrees outside. And that's 29 degrees just sitting still, let alone running around. Try, try sitting still in 30 degrees and feeling how cold that is, then try running as fast as you can in one direction and you can feel the temperature decrease. That's called wind chill. Wind chill is the worst enemy ever of anyone who's ever ridden a motorcycle in the cold ever, period. Unless you have one of those fancy heated jackets and maybe like a fancy hell, heated helmet. I don't even know if that's a thing. That sounds like a fire hazard. Anyway, the point is, I was laying in bed knowing that I had set this as my date of departure and I was looking at temperatures that genuinely scared me as far as when does frostbite set in? How do I know when my adrenaline is compensating for how cold I actually am and I'm actually causing damage to my body. Will I be able to hold the clutch lever and the brake lever sufficiently with cold fingers? Will I be able to continue to ride at 60, 70, 80 miles an hour in the face of these temperatures? That's without wind in and of itself too. What if it's windy and it's cold and I'm driving at 60 miles an hour? <sighs> Before I even turned my bike on for the first time for this journey, I was considering quitting. Really, this 2,000 miles is a story of wanting to quit, knowing that I want to quit, knowing that it would be better for my body if I quit, knowing that it would be better for my emotional health if I quit, and yet also knowing that deep down, if I quit, there's a bigger part of me or a deeper part of me that would be hurt more than my fingers were cold and more than my emotional health might suffer as a product of all the super long, super cold nights I was going to spend in the desert and in the woods by myself in my tent. And so I stuck with it. Although my original goal, laying in bed, looking at the weather forecast, thinking about the ride I was about to start, was to make it to Argentina, a part of me knew that I wasn't really prepared to even make that goal until I at least rode a few hundred miles on my bike, until I at least crossed the country on my motorcycle and experienced what it meant to travel by motorcycle, until I went through my gear a thousand times and had to repack it and unpack it, and until I dropped my bike in the middle of nowhere several times and had to unload it, until I dropped my bike so many times that my back started hurting, until I realized how terrifying it can be in the open deserts and plains of America when the wind is blowing and you're traveling on something relatively light at 70 miles an hour, how the front wheel can just be picked up by gusts of wind and then set down facing a different direction than you were originally facing going forward and suddenly you're headed towards a semi. Until I realized all that, I couldn't actually say my goal was to ride to Argentina. So part of me knew that and that's part of why I stuck with it. Part of why I got on my bike in the 30 degree weather, part of why I started the bike up and told my family goodbye and part of why I didn't turn around after one of the worst nights of my life camping that very first night. So let's just let's just take this one step at a time. So first of all, I'm lying in bed, I'm looking at the weather forecast and I am feeling rather cold, no pun intended, and empty and and numb to this idea of the of the daunting task that I've set up before me. And yet I'm the type of person for better or worse who once I say I'm going to touch the hot stove to prove that I can touch it, I have to touch the hot stove. Even if you tell me about the third degree burns I'm going to suffer, even if you show me a YouTube video of somebody touching the hot stove and getting hurt, even if you show me a news article about all the, the terrible pandemic of people touching hot stoves and hurting themselves, once I say I'm going to touch the hot stove, I have to touch the hot stove. And so I woke up that morning, packed my bags, and started touching the hot stove. Okay, we're done. We're done with the touching the hot stove thing. This is a little weird. Did I mention I'm sponsored by Oven Mints? <laughs> So I wake up, I'm in that numb state that I was talking about, 
I'm packing my bags. I'm double checking I have everything. I'm loading it all onto the bike. I'm kind of ignoring everything my family is saying because I feel like I'm on the verge of collapse before I've even begun, which is the worst feeling, by the way. Being on the verge of collapse halfway through something versus being on the verge of collapse at the beginning or before you've even begun something are two very different things. One, you have a little street cred going behind you. The other, you are just weak. And so I was wandering around the house, checking boxes and making sure I have everything in a weak, numb state, unable to fully respond to anything my family said until finally the moment came. I told everyone I was leaving. I went out, turned the key in my ignition, thanked the Lord that my bike actually started because I took the bike apart and tried to quote unquote fix it. And I was really surprised that it even started after I was the one messing with the engine. And then I told my family so long. My mom cried. My dad teared up a little bit. My brother was just watching. Everyone gave me a hug. I couldn't really tell whether they thought I'd be back in a couple of months or a couple of hours, but as I told them over and over again, I have no idea what I'm going to encounter, and it's very possible I turn around in a couple of hours. Part of me was already trying to pad my return in defeat to make sure I suffered as little shame as possible. So the bike is running, I've hugged everyone, and I go to get on the bike, and that's when I encounter the first example of how unprepared I am. Turns out, when you're wearing long underwear and pants, and motorcycle pants, and the inside liners, the heat not the heated liners, but the insulated liners for your motorcycle pants, and motorcycle boots, turns out you're kind of a little bit like the, the marshmallow man. What's that guy called? The, the tires? Uh, Continental? I don't know what he is. The, the big guy. You know what I'm talking about. That guy. Turns out you're a little bit like him, and you have very limited mobility and the flexibility in your hips and legs. And so I went to throw my leg up over the bike, and it didn't go higher than about my knee height. I couldn't get my leg up any higher than that. So I kind of stand there for a second and try to figure out how I'm going to do this. And that's when I came up with what I used for the first couple of days, which was the run, hop, skip, and a jump. I'd back up, pull my, my pants up as high as I could, and then I would literally get a running start, jump, and raise my leg as high as I could, and slam into the bike with my crotch and hope that that doesn't impair child-rearing and child-bearing days ahead of me. So I backed very slowly down the driveway, turned onto the road, and hit into first gear without stalling, thank the Lord, and started down the road, not turning around, having said my last goodbye to my family, knowing that I had a incredibly daunting, terribly risky, and incredibly unknown task ahead of me. The first 100-200 miles went pretty well. Yes, I couldn't feel my fingers, but it turns out it was simply because I was squeezing the throttle so incredibly hard that I was cutting off circulation from my hands. So once I figured that out, I relaxed a little and I started using different parts of my hand to maintain the throttle at the various 60 mile an hour, 70 mile an hour speeds that you travel on normal highway slash backcountry roads. The first day went pretty well. I passed a lot of semis. I got blown around a little bit. The weather was pretty clear, but it was very cold. But the contrast between my adrenaline, the sun being out, and the cold were just enough to amount in me being able to survive. And so it was, I got about 300 miles into the trip, pulled off for a quick pee break, and realized that the first thing had broken on the trip, which was my cell phone. As I would find out later, the chain tension balancer, which is a tiny little chain, a tiny little spring in the bike, was not adjusted correctly and old and had never been adjusted by the previous owner. Thanks a lot, buddy. I know there was a lot you didn't share with me. I forgive you, but I wish you had just shared with me how bad the bike actually was. But... Turns out that was causing a lot of extra vibration at 4,000, 5,000 RPMs, and therefore my phone suffered an incredible amount of vibration in the first 200, 300 miles, and so it was that I now have no front-facing camera, which is why maybe you haven't seen as many pictures from me or stories from me lately, and mom, I apologize, you haven't gotten as many pictures from my life. It's because only the selfie camera works, and uh, I'm not really one for selfies. But no big deal. That's a that's a superficial kind of surface level thing. It's not a big deal that the front facing camera broke. No big deal at all. So I hop back on the bike. It's around golden hour. I have my destination in mind. I'm going to just barely make it right before sunset. It's going to be amazing. It's this camping spot I found in the middle of nowhere in New northern New Mexico near Cuba, New Mexico, several hundred miles into my journey. I was going to do it. And so it was that the sun started setting and I'm still on these beautiful roads. And then I realized that I completely miscalculated the fact that the sunset is at the horizon, but then there's a such thing as like a mountain range sunset, which is when the sun actually disappears behind the mountain range, which might be 45 minutes before the actual sunset. And so it was that I find myself in already 30 degree temps with the sun up, suddenly turning into 20 degree temps when the sun hits the mountainous horizon line at about 4.15 p.m., 
with still almost an hour until I reach my camping spot. I'm riding through a national forest right there, and I'm riding on this road, and I'm passing campsites. First campsite I pass, and I think, I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to just settle. I want to make it to my spot. Second campsite I pass, it's getting a little colder, and I think, I can make it. I'm looking at the ETA. It's going up a little bit because I'm riding a little slow, but still I can make it. I zip up a little tighter, huddle a little lower on the bike. I can do this. I pass the third campsite and think, this seems like the last straw here. I bet you I won't pass another one. I have to make a decision. And I stick with my guns and I keep riding. And so it is that another 15 miles down the road, I hit a very bumpy, rough dirt road, just as the sun has completely disappeared and it's starting to get considerably darker than it should have been. And I still have maybe 50 minutes, 45 minutes to my campsite. So I make the first compromise of the trip. I turn around, I ride back another 15, 20 miles, and I turn into the first campsite. Campsite is completely empty. The camp host is not there. There's absolutely no sign of life. I can't even tell if the campsite allows motorcycles because for some reason on the main check-in sign it says no motorcycles, which I've never seen a sign like that. I normally have seen no motorcycles on unmarked paths, no motorcycles outside of paved roads, but this one just said no motorcycles. But I thought, screw it. The worst they can do is kick me out, and it's already dark. No one's coming by till morning. I didn't even pay because, you know, rebel rebel me thinking National Force is going to be fine without me. That was kind of a mistake. But I pull up to a campsite. My adrenaline is still pumping. I start breaking down my motorcycle, setting up camp, and that's when it gets completely dark and about 15 degrees outside. So now I'm wandering around my campsite. Tent is set up. Food is cooking, very slowly, but cooking. I'm going to make some some of that little instant rice packets that you've had before, except this one is, um, what is it, taco rice flavor, something that's meant to be had with other things, and yet it's my entire dinner plan. It's just this incredibly over-seasoned, very much not filling or healthy pack of rice, taco rice. I couldn't find a single stick, log, branch, dead tree, pile of pine cones, whatever I could find. I could not find a single thing to burn, so I have no fire. All I have is my headlamp, and the jet boil in front of me, boiling my water slowly. And I'm wandering around, setting up camp, you know, messing with things, moving things around, finding my book, burning time, and I think, oh, it must be close to bedtime. And I look down and I realize it's 5.30 p.m., pitch black, and utterly freezing. And that's when it starts to dawn on me that I might be in over my head. And that's when I start going through all these questions of how do I face my family, my friends, the audience that I'm putting this content out to, how do I face these people that I have more or less promised that I'm going to do this thing? Not that I'm going to try this thing, that I'm going to do this thing, this ride to Argentina. How can I face them when here I am on day one, not even day one, day zero, day 0.5, and I'm already considering giving up, and I'm already feeling too weak, too prone to cold, too in unable to warm myself up, too hungry and knowing that I'm not actually adequately feeding myself, too bored with the idea that it's going to be many hours before I can even fall asleep and many more hours before I can even wake up? How do I face the people in my life knowing that I am a failure? And so with that terrifyingly shameful thought and shaming thought in my mind, I helped warm my fingers up a little longer to read my book for a total of 27 minutes before I completely got too cold, too bored, too hungry, too sick from the feeling of over-seasoned rice in my stomach, and I crawled into my tent, thinking, ah, at last I will get a relief from this freezing cold. So I crawl in my tent, no tent fly on, the sky is completely clear, there's no need for a rain fly. I crawl in, I get inside my sleeping bag, and I think, ah, let the warmth set in. And I wait. I wait a minute, I wait two minutes, I wait five minutes, and there is no change in temperature between when I got in my bag and the temperature that should be changing inside my sleeping bag to be much, much warmer, toasty warm, steamy warm. The only thing that's happening is a slight lessening in the overall cold feeling in my body, but still, it's just that uncomfortable feeling like when you should have worn a coat, but you're only wearing a jacket, that type of feeling. Not necessarily painful, but definitely uncomfortable, like you've known you've made a mistake. Oh, and I forgot to mention, it was a full moon, and the moon was just above the trees, so it was basically like having a headlight shining directly in the tent. And I think I had had some coffee earlier in the day, and therefore I was just laying there, feeling the freezing cold of the outside battling with the barely warm feeling of my body inside my sleeping bag, thinking, what am I doing? What 
the heck am I doing with my life? What the heck am I doing with my body? What the heck am I doing with my time that I have on this earth, with the resources that I have been given, with the opportunities that I've been given? What the heck am I doing? Fast forward a week and a half later, the what the heck thoughts never stopped. Day one was the same as all the days would be in terms of lying in my sleeping bag for long hours in the night, just thinking, why am I making the decisions that I'm making? Why am I pushing towards this crazy goal that no one's forcing me to do, that nobody is calling for me to do, no gun is pointed to anyone's head, there's no prize money that's going to save my relative from cancer, Some, there's no reason other than this feeling inside me that this is how I want to spend my waking, breathing, living hours on this earth. Long story short, lying in that tent, taking many, many hours to fall asleep, was the first time in my life that I was genuinely afraid of the consequences of my decisions in terms of something like freezing. Sure, we put ourselves in scary decisions sometimes as far as how we drive, the people we hang out with, the people that we hang out with who happen to be driving terribly that we're in the back seat of, quickly buckling our seats hoping that we don't die. Don't tell me I'm the only one who's had that experience. We put ourselves in dangerous situations, but oftentimes it's danger that happens in a moment, danger that flashes by. There's a different type of danger I found, and that danger is the danger of slowly approaching an unknown that could potentially be incredibly harmful and dangerous, namely the fact that I was in a sleeping bag rated to 15 degrees in 12 degree weather, not knowing whether it would get colder in the night. So it was 12 degrees at 8 p.m. That's not even the coldest part of the night. I was thinking, what happens at 2 a.m. when it's 5 degrees, when it's 4 degrees? Am I going to have to spend the night physically moving inside my sleeping bag attempting to stay warm? This is like something from a movie, or worse, a book, something from a novel, or from one of those crazy stories of survivors of the Antarctic voyage, of the Shackleton voyage, of whatever. It was cold. It was very cold. Thankfully, I didn't die, if you weren't able to catch on to how the story ends. Well, the story's not over yet, but I survived. I woke up the next morning, everything was frozen. My water bag was frozen, my water bottle was frozen, my jet boil wouldn't start, my bike was barely able to start, my body was frozen, everything was frozen. My motorcycle seat was covered in ice. I had to scrape my motorcycle seat off and then sit on a thawing patch of ice on my motorcycle seat. It was cold, and it was still cold at 8 a.m. The sun still hadn't broken the mountainous horizon line. Yet another mistake that I made in my calculations. And so, with renewed encouragement that I survived the first night, I packed up my sleeping bag, and the ranger pulled up, parked in front of my spot, asked if I had paid what I was doing here, and looked at me like an absolute crazy man, also not the first time that would happen in the first 2,000 miles, and then informed me that it was 10 degrees to 12 degrees last night, and I should prepare better next time I'm out here, and also to please pay on the way out. So I packed up my motorcycle, a little bit feeling ashamed of myself. I did the run, hop, skip, and a jump, threw that leg up and over, and started the rest of the ride south. I, my goal was to make it all the way to Las Cruces, where a friend is, to see them that evening. So I get back on the road. I start traveling those 15 or 20 miles that I had originally gone back the night before and backtracked, and I'm happy. I'm making the curves in the road. I've got it all to myself. It's nothing but me and the frost-covered grass, the deer, a couple of farmers who really scowled at me because apparently a teal-colored Office Depot crate on the back and a overly loaded bike is not a good thing to see in your national forest land. And so I was riding. And that's when I hit that first unpaved section of the journey. Super excited to hit it in the daytime. Very looking forward to testing my bike. I get the first five miles down the road and I glance down and I realize I'm going zero miles per hour. And I'm thinking, I'm not going zero miles per hour. I'm moving at 40 miles an hour, surely. How am I going zero miles per hour? So I pull over and I start kicking things and I start messing with things. And that's when I realize that my speedometer and odometer cable is broken. And so I have no ability to tell how fast I'm going or how far I've gone. So front-facing camera of my phone and speedometer and odometer, as well as my emotional stability and spirit. All these things are, are things that have broken in the first 24 hours. And I think, no big deal. I know roughly how fast I'm going based on the gear that I'm in and the RPMs that I'm pushing. That's no big deal. If a cop stops me, I can just explain. I broke my speedometer and odometer. And I don't plan on reselling this bike anytime soon, so the fact that the odometer is not working, psh, no big deal. 
I rode the first, the next hundred miles through winding dirt, bumpy back roads in this national forest. It's amazing. I'm happy. I'm singing. I've got headphones in. I'm just having a good old time. And then I get in New Mexico, further into New Mexico, into these paved, beautiful country roads. It's perfect fall weather. There's still some orange trees on the sides of the road, so it's yellow trees, leaves are blowing. Oh, it's just a good time. And then my bike starts hiccuping. It starts losing power when I'm trying to accelerate or when I'm just trying to keep a single speed, I start dropping RPMs and I start kind of feeling a jerking motion on the bike. And I think nothing of it. I think, oh, it's just probably something going through the carburetor, no big deal great engine understanding, Jeremiah. So I keep pushing it, keep pushing it, keep pushing it, keep pushing it until the bike dies. While I'm just cruising along one of these roads, it just dies, just goes from 100 to zero real quick. So I coast over to the side of the road, I'm pushing the starter, it's turning over, but nothing's happening. And I'm thinking, what the heck is something, is my carburetor, is a tube loose, what's going on? So I wait a minute and I'm pushing things and I'm moving gauges, I'm changing the choke, kicking things, I'm hitting things, and then, oh, it starts up again. I think, oh, no big deal. It's probably just a hiccup in the system, no pun intended. And I keep riding. Another five miles and dun, 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 bike dies again. I pull over, same thing, hit things, kick things, mess with the choke, bike starts again. And I think, what is going on? I need to figure out what's going on before I die in the middle of nowhere, more in the middle of nowhere than I already am. So go another five miles and dun, 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 bike stops again. I take a deep breath. I say, it's okay. I knew this was going to happen. I just didn't anticipate it would happen within the first few hundred miles of home. It's okay. This is why you brought tools. This is what you signed up for. You signed up for the unknown. You signed up for getting yourself in, frankly, shitty situations, Jeremiah. This is what you signed up for. So I pull off onto the side of the road, coast over, put the bike up on its center stand, take off the panniers, unload my teal office depot crate, unload my bag, unload my sleeping pad, take off the seat, take off the the side fairings, and I start messing with tubes, start pinching things, start trying to figure out what is going on. The bike won't start. The bike will start here, then die there. It will start, then not respond when I rev. Nobody's stopping. Cops pass. Clearly, I'm in need of help. Nobody's stopping, and I'm starting to become a little indignant, the fact that no one is stopping, even though I clearly need help. All the while, I'm not making a single hand gesture or eye contact with anyone letting them know I need help. I'm just pridefully thinking people should just stop to help me. So it was that I meet my first friendly stranger along this journey. I see a bike coming, another motorcyclist coming the opposite direction on the road. He's enjoying his curves, fully geared up, touring set up with the panniers and the helmet and the big bike. And I finally let my pride take a back seat and I raise my hand and I wave for him to pull over. He pulls over, immediately starts talking, trying to figure out what's going on. It seems like he hasn't talked to anyone in a while and neither have I, so we're both kind of talking to each other, excitedly trying to share what's going on. I share my assumptions about thinking that it's something with the carburetor because there were problems with the carburetor in the first place. He's talking about what he thinks it might be, gunk in the gas tank that maybe has gotten into the carburetor because I didn't properly clean the gas tank when I cleaned the carburetor. And then he asks, how much gas do you have? And this is now an hour, an hour and a half of sitting on the side of the road, taking things apart, hands and knees covered in dirt and grime from the engine, thinking that I'm going to have to turn around, my bike is broken, the whole trip is over with, and he asks, how much gas do you have? And I go, oh, pff, I've got lots of gas, of course I have lots of gas, why wouldn't I have lots of gas? He opens the engine cap, looks in and says, dude, you're out of gas. And so it was that Jeremiah feels his second wave of shame, first one realizing that he might have really fucked up trying to camp in 12-degree weather with a 15-degree bag, knowing that he's going to have to spend hours and hours in that bag, completely miserable and cold. The second being when he spends an hour and a half on the side of the road trying to take apart his bike like some engineering, mechanical-minded badass, and realizes that he's just freaking run out of gas. How embarrassing is that moment? So my friend is incredibly kind, and he volunteers to ride with me to the next gas station, which is a few miles down the road, just to make sure that it actually is my gas that is low, and then to see me on my way. So I switch my gas, my gas tank over to reserve, which gives me about 40 miles, and I ride at a careful pace down the road until I reach a nice little New Mexico gas station to fill that tank up with five gallons of, ga of gas, which means that my gas tank was almost completely empty because it's a six gallon tank with the reserve holding about a gallon, and which meant all that panicking, all that effort to take the bike apart, all that struggling was simply because I ran out of gas. Talk about a humbling experience. 
So I chatted with my friend for a little while and then we sent me on my way high on the idea that I still was in the game, still was able to do this. I hadn't been knocked over yet. Well, I've been knocked over, but I hadn't been knocked out yet. I was ready to go, ready to keep pushing things. And this is when I encountered the next difficulty in my trip. So up until this point, I was blessed with country roads, national forest roads, back roads. But it turns out the stretch from Cuba, New Mexico to Las Cruces, New Mexico is basically one superhighway for several hundred miles, barely changing directions at all, with a butt ton of traffic, semis, people texting and driving, just awful, awful conditions. Oh, not to mention 80 mile an hour speed limits. When my bike really only goes to about 70, 75, anything above that and it starts to wobble uncontrollably and then you potentially get thrown off at 80 miles an hour into a guardrail. So really a good idea to just stay below that 75 mile an hour range, which ultimately I'm guessing at because remember, I don't have a speedometer and I don't have an odometer. But I also know my friend leaves the next morning. I have to make it to him tonight. Otherwise, I'm not going to see him. I'm not going to have a place to stay. My whole plan falls apart. If I don't do this next, I don't know what it was, eight hours, something crazy during the day. It was awful. Fast forward over the next 300, 400, 500 nauseating miles of straight highway of riding at 5,000 RPM, 75 miles an hour with wind buffeting my entire body, but most importantly, my head causing a vertigo type nausea to be to set in realizing that every single time a semi passes me it's a fight for my life to try to stay upright and try to stay straight watching the minutes countdown on my gps not just the miles the minutes and this is when i realized how awful it is that every 10 miles or so along major highways in america we have these signs 170 miles to albuquerque 169 miles to albuquerque 162 miles to albuquerque please please stop reminding me how many hundreds of miles i have to albuquerque give me a 50 mile stretch with no signs please that's all i could think about was the frequency of these reminders of how fucked i was but i also knew I had to do this. I had to make it to him to see him before he left, to have a place to stay and to stay on schedule. Because another mistake I made, setting a rigid schedule, setting a schedule without large buffer periods for things like, hey, you ran out of gas, but it's going to take you two hours and a stranger stopping on the side of the road to tell you that you need gas to run your engine. This is what you need to plan for. So it was that I arrived to my friend's house an hour and a half after dark, after riding way too many miles in a straight direction at 75 miles an hour, pushing my bike to the limit, pushing my body to the limit, vibrating, shaking, very hungry, really unable to focus, but happy that I made it. Day two. I wasn't defeated yet. At this point, I felt like a veteran. I had put several hundred miles under my belt. I had taken my bike apart on the side of the road, no matter the fact that it was actually because I was an idiot and I needed gas. I had survived Arctic temperatures and polar bears basically in the night and this freezing temperatures in Cuba, New Mexico. And I had made it all the way to the southern New Mexico to see my friend. And so we ate some green chili burgers or something delicious and overly expensive, had a beer, and I slept one of the best nights of sleep I've ever had on his couch with the fire right next to me. Oh. Thank you, Grant. That was amazing. The next morning, I wake up, we make some coffee. My friend offers to go get breakfast, to take a drive, but I know I need to get started on this ride because my two great days of experience have taught me it's better to get started, it's better to start chipping away the miles on your ride than it is to leave yourself at the end of the day with still 60, 70, 80, 100 miles to go at night. So I hop on my bike, I wave goodbye to my friend, and I decide something radical but necessary, which is I switch over to Google Maps, I go over to settings, and I turn on avoid highways. So now my route will take longer, will go much further, and yet I will not have to travel at 80 miles an hour with semis and people in PT cruisers who can't decide whether they want to go 72 miles an hour or 78 miles an hour, and so they pass me every time that I pass them, thinking that it's a game. It's not a game, Karen and Sharon. It's my safety. So I see my ETA, I see that I still have about an hour or two of buffer time of daylight, and I set out with a smile on my face, determined to make this trip into something good, into something memorable, into something that I want to perpetuate, not something that I want to forget about, turn around from, sell my bike, burn it in a parking lot somewhere, and fly home as soon as possible. 
The next few days were rather uneventful. There were some beautiful, beautiful riding. My bike started manifesting other problems, but small problems here and there. As long as I kept gas in it, as long as I tried to warm it up in the mornings and was okay with it taking a while to start, as long as I was okay with the fact that my chain was having some issues with the tension changing randomly, as long as I was okay with the fact that my preloaded center spring was not set correctly and so every time that I would hit a bump everything on my bike would go flying. As long as I was okay with the fact that my phone was probably going to break by the end of this trip because I thought the vibrations were going to get even worse. As long as I was okay with the fact that I still hadn't figured out how to eat and sleep comfortably given the fact that I would go to bed at 4 or 5 p.m. every day because it was too cold to hold my fingers outside my sleeping bag and read my book. As long as I was okay with all those things it was ultimately really beautiful. I'll never forget these stretches in New Mexico where there would be orchards on either side. I don't, I don't know if they were orchards. They look like orchards, like pear trees, apple trees, something squat. So maybe apple trees, short and squat and broad. I don't think pear trees are short and squat and broad. Pear trees are tall and and skinny, I think. At least that's the only pear tree I've eaten from. Anyway, there are these rides where the symmetry of the road and the surroundings are just breathtaking, where you wish you could tell every single person in your life about it, where you could convey the beauty, where you could capture it in a picture, in a video, in a song, in a dance, in an interpretive dance, I don't know, where you could capture it in a way where somebody could understand what it felt like in that moment to be free, to be there, and to be there by choice, and to know that you're on a journey, something bigger than yourself, something that's going to change you, something that's going to push you, something that's going to force you to encounter situations that are going to show you the uglier side of yourself and force you to decide how you're going to respond. Damn, deep conversations for some pear trees on the side of the road, but I know that's what you, these are the conversations you start having in your head when it's just you and the open road and the occasional barista who asks whether you're okay when you're ordering your coffee and clutching the warmth of it in the cup in the corner of the coffee shop, trying to just keep your sanity in check. Fast forward a few days and I'm in this beautiful, beautiful spot outside where my brother lives in Arizona, ready to go see him the next day, enjoying what it means to be alone, to have some solitude. I take some fun pictures. I record some fun stuff. I pop my bike up on its rear center stand and adjust the rear axle because the tension is all messed up and I'm trying to figure that out. It's a good time. Another couple hundred miles under my belt, another couple days in the freezing early sunset, beautiful ride that is my journey from Colorado to California. So I see my brother, I get to take a shower, I get to have some good conversations, ones that warm the heart and soul, ones that feel you feel understood, you feel seen. He's accepting of what I'm doing, he's supportive, which means the world to me, and I set off continuing my ride to California. Again, avoid highways, real circuitous route. Circuitous? Maybe that's the word, I don't know, like a real roundabout route, and yet one that I'm happy with. We're riding, and our strategy is day in, day out, we, we set out pretty early, not super early, but you know, 8, 9 a.m. when the sun is warm enough to keep you pretty warm, but not 10 a.m., not 11 a.m., so a good start in the morning. You set your final destination, which oftentimes I would just set like San Francisco or California or L.A., somewhere that I knew was far enough away that the route would be the same regardless, and then I'd ride till 1, 2 p.m., I'd pull over somewhere I'd, where I'd have service, I'd fill up my gas, I'd eat a pickle or two on the side of the road and an old hamburger bun that's smashed up in the back of my panniers, and I'd sit there and I'd look on freecampsites.net towards uh, along my route until I found a place that was roughly another two hours from me or so, and I'd look for a boondocking site, a place where you could go out and camp for free, a place that is unwatched, unpatrolled. Typically, they're kind of sketchy places, but at the same time, it's kind of part of the adventure that I want. So I search freecampsites.net, I find a spot, put it in my GPS, and then when I get to about 30 minutes to an hour outside of my campsite, I pull over and stop at a gas station, fill up my gas tank one last time, and peruse whatever they have to offer and grab some eggs or grab some cold meat or grab some little treats like a little banana bread or grab like a bottle of water, whatever it is that I need to eat that night. And then I ride the rest of the way, get to my campsite at four, set up camp by 4.30, be done eating by five, read till like 5.45, six with my headlamp, and then lie in bed from six to eight, trying to fall asleep, trying to ignore the weird sounds in the night, trying to think of whether 
I zipped everything up and everything's not going to blow away in the night, trying to ignore the fact that occasionally cars would come down the road that I had come down and stop right next to my tent, maybe 50 yards off, and just idle their car there for 15 minutes before driving away, trying to ignore the fact that it's very possible that people are out here looking for alone targets, trying to ignore the fact that anything could happen and nobody would know, trying to sleep, trying to sleep, trying to sleep, all the while thinking another minute has passed even though it feels like 15 even another hour has passed, even though it feels like all night, and I still have many, many hours till the morning. Then you wake up in the morning, you make your oatmeal packets and maybe eat an apple, you load up the bike, you're bright-eyed and, and bushy-eared or whatever the term is, and you get on your bike and you start riding again, and you do the same thing over and over again. And that's when the wind became a massive factor. So normal wind when riding a motorcycle is bad, but sustained wind at high speeds is legitimately dangerous in my opinion. When you're crossing wide open plains, the chances of gusts are incredibly high and the chances of those gusts being consistent and strong are very considerable. And so it was that I spent many hundreds of miles between Arizona and my final destination in California just battling every single mile the wind. Not just the wind endangering the direction of my bike traveling down the highway, but the wind battering my helmet. This is when I discovered the fact that my wind visor, which the previous owner had bought and installed and said it was a great windscreen, really great windscreen for touring, and I just took his word for it, that windscreen was designed for crotch rockets. Crotch rockets are designed for riders who are leaning forward, one with the bike, the wind goes up and over their helmet, and kind of makes them feel like they're one with the bike when it comes to wind resistance. A, an adventure bike, a dual sport bike, and an upright sit sitting position, which is my KLR650, are completely different sitting positions, wind resistance points of contact, different windscreens are needed. Long story short, it turns out that for the past several hundred miles, I had been riding in possibly the worst position for wind resistance, meaning the wind was hitting my bike, funneled up and over my visor, my windscreen, and directly into my forehead. This is absolutely nauseating. Basically, the wind is causing vibrations in your helmet that sure, you can stop if you reach up and hold your helmet with your hand, but how many miles can you reach up and hold your helmet with your hand? Turns out actually you can do that for quite a few miles because I definitely did that for quite a few miles. But the point is, at some point, you're going to have to either accept the nauseating wind noise or figure out a solution. And so it was that I found myself in some store parking lot messing with my windscreen. I ended up taking it off, throwing it on the back of the bike, strapping it down, putting screws somewhere on the back of the bike, and testing the ride with no windscreen, which seemed kind of crazy. The idea of having no windscreen on your bike, it's kind of like having no windshield. It seems like it's just a break from what is supposed to be that kind of messes with your head. So I'm riding along thinking, oh boy, now I'm really fitting the homeless weird dude on a bike meme for sure, because this is no windscreen, it's strapped to the back, panniers are overflowing, big yellow bag, smile on my face, bugs all over, long hair flowing out the back of my helmet. I was quite a sight to be seen, I'm sure. So the trade-off I was making was, with the windscreen, I have little re wind resistance on my body, but heavy wind resistance on my forehead, which meant a lot of vibration focused in my helmet, which meant nauseatingly loud, obnoxiously loud wind noise. Or, once I took the windscreen off, my trade-off was wind resistance over my entire body, and therefore physically straining myself to stay upright in my seat, but very, very drastically reduced wind noise in my helmet. So I had to make the decision between a sore body, a sore neck, from trying to maintain an upright position on my bike, versus incredibly nauseatingly sick mile after mile wind noise. I think you can guess which one I accepted. Obviously, I took the windscreen off, stuck it on the back of my bike, and I did not put it back on until I reached San Francisco. Fast forward to day six, day seven, day eight. I don't even know which day it was. At this point, I've kind of figured out my cadence. I figured out how to camp. I figured out how to break down and set up camp pretty easily. Oh, I also figured out how to get on the bike like a real badass. Turns out, when you have a fully loaded bike with things on the back and on the sides, the way to get on and off your bike is to place your foot on the peg, the left peg to be exact, where the kickstand is on your left side of your bike, and then you stand up on that peg and you swing your leg up and over, the opposite leg, up and over the entire thing, and then step off the bike. It feels kind of terrifying. It feels like your bike's going to fall over. It feels like an idiot move. 
Yeah, that is the way to get on and off your bike when you have it heavily loaded, in my opinion. I watched it in a video on YouTube, immediately tried to replicate it, and then couldn't help but show off how cool I was getting off and on my bike in gas station parking lots and wherever else I was for the day. And so it was that I am waking up one morning cold and alone and lonely and questioning my life and questioning my intentions and questioning my larger goal and questioning my decision-making abilities and questioning my decisions as pertaining to my career and questioning my love life and all those things that go through your mind when you're laying freezing cold in your sleeping bag, just grateful that another night has passed. And I realized that it is Thanksgiving Day. Happy Thanksgiving. So I hop on my bike and I decide I'm going to treat myself. I open up Google Maps as soon as I get service and I search breakfast. I find a nice casual kind of hole in the wall looking diner some in some town near me. I go the 30 minutes out of my way. I get in the diner. I get in a good old booth, order some coffee, and I'm sitting there just relishing the warmth coming off that coffee mug into my hands, ready for my ham and eggs and toast to come. So incredibly excited for the all of the above, including the cheap jelly and jam on the table that I'm just going to lavish on my bread. And the the little diner lady comes over and she's filling up my coffee and I'm kind of content in my mind just sitting there completely unaware of how I might appear. And she leans down and she says, are you okay, honey? And I glance up kind of breaking out of a stupor. And that's when I realize I look like a mess. My hair is disheveled. There's probably black streaks on my cheeks from the fire that I'd had the night before. I smell something between body odor, pickles, avocados, hamburger buns, sweat, motor oil and gasoline because you know you spill it on your tank and then it gets on you it's just a great sampling of all the smells of a good old manly camping on a motorcycle man are you okay honey broke me out of my stupor and that's when i realized i probably look like a mess smell like a mess but the truth was on the inside i was pretty happy because i had made up my mind that i was going to make it at least to california by that time i kind of decided there's no way I'm making it to Argentina, at least not as is. There's things I need to improve. There's emotional trauma I need to heal. There's gear I need to change. There's planning I need to do. I need to change my strategy. I need to change my approach. I need to fix my kind of emotional decrepit state that I was in, sitting in that diner with a lady filling up my coffee, seeing it and going, are you okay, honey? I realized I wasn't gonna make it to Argentina. So it was over the next couple of days, as I told myself, I'm going to make it to California. I'm going to make it to California. There's no question. I'm making it to California. I'm making it to San Francisco. I also had to sit with the fact that I wasn't going to make it to Argentina. Part of me knew that I was going to fail. Part of me knew, I think from the very beginning, that really from the moment that I woke up in that bed, reading the weather forecast, kind of feeling the numb, dreading feeling of getting on that motorcycle and starting to bring to life something that I had told myself and everyone that I cared about that I was going to do, part of me knew I wasn't going to make it. And yet I still pushed through and I still had to do it. I still had to bring myself to the point of failure. I couldn't just tell myself I wasn't capable of doing it. I had to show myself I wasn't capable of doing it. I don't know why. I think it's just a part of who I am, a part of how I want to live life. I want to drive down the dirt road to see where it ends rather than just read the sign that tells me that it ends and it doesn't go anywhere. Because at the end of the day, if you drive down the dirt road, if you try the thing that you know you're going to fail at, what you'll encounter is the unknown. And I don't just mean the unknown, meaning the scary things that life throws at you. I mean the part of life that you can never plan for. So I knew I was going to fail. I knew I was going to be unable to continue this ride to Argentina, what I could not have planned for was my renewed determination and planning and capability due to experience of actually doing this thing, this ride to Argentina. I now feel more confident about doing this ride to Argentina than I ever could have had I stayed in my bed that morning and decided, you know what, I know I can't do this thing. A huge part of my life that I've been trying to incorporate more actively for the last couple of years is accepting the fact that not only is there always going to be aspects of your life that you can't plan for, that that is a wonderful and good thing. Would you rather be able to plan every aspect of your life out, knowing everything that you're going to encounter, or would you rather understand the fact that by accepting the unknown, by making room for the unknown, 
you are making room for the good things that you never could imagine. By definition, they're things that you could not have planned for. And that is beautiful. And that is marvelous. And so it was that I'm riding along, trying to sit with my defeat, trying to sit with my failure, realizing that this is exactly what I needed. I needed to face defeat. I needed to test my commitment to this goal. And I needed to encounter this unknown opportunity, this thing I couldn't have planned for, to be able to test whether I actually wanted to do this thing in order to make the decision to continue to do it, to continue to try again, regardless of obstacles, in order to have a stronger grasp on why I'm doing this, in order to have a stronger reason for why I'm doing this, in order to have a better plan for why I'm doing this. Had I just made the decision at the beginning of the trip, had I turned my bike off, walked back into my family's house and said, it's too cold, I'm going to try another time. It's too unknown, I'm going to try with more planning. Had I not just jumped in, I don't know where I would be today, but I don't think I would be continuing to plan and execute towards doing this ride to Argentina. So the last few hundred miles to my destination turned out to be pretty good. The bike was limping along, there were lots of problems, I really wasn't sure it was going to make it, but I had made up my mind how I was going to feel about my failure, about my inability to be able to see this plan through. I had made up my mind that one, it's okay to fail, because I'd rather be the person that tries and fails than the person that never tries, and two, I was realizing that I had learned enough real tangible things, like how I was going to deal with accommodations on the way down in order to last, like how I was going to deal with a wind visor that didn't cause nauseating sickness in my, in my head and ears, like how I was going to deal with how many miles I could do every day and not get sick from sitting on my, on my bike too long. I'd learned these lessons, and I was going to be able to apply them to a goal that wasn't dead yet, it just was delayed. And that takes us to the last 200-mile stretch between LA and San Francisco following Highway 1. It's a beautiful morning. The sky is clear except for a few unthreatening clouds. The road is basically clear because it's a morning and it's a weekday. And I am riding some of the most beautiful riding in the world, in my opinion, which is Highway 1 along the coast. Just free and feeling wonderful and feeling excited and feeling happy, feeling close to completing the first step of my goal, feeling excited about having to deal with the consequences of a broken bike, the consequences of a broken spirit, the consequences of a tired body, in order to prepare for something that I was doubly committed to doing now, which is my ride to Patagonia. I don't think I'll ever forget the ride between LA and San Francisco, with my bike barely making it, stuttering, the chain tension being completely unpredictable, the vibration getting so bad that I really was afraid my phone was just going to break, my phone holder having almost broken completely, just barely holding my phone on there, my windscreen strapped to the back of my bike, dirt all over my body, my hair all knotted and nasty from hanging out the back of my helmet with the hundreds of miles and thousands of miles of road dust and brake dust all in my hair, real sexy look, knowing that I was going to make it knowing that I was going to make it at least to the first part of my journey, that I was going to fix my bike, and that I was going to come back at this ready to go, rejuvenated, and excited to continue. I made it to San Francisco. I coughed up the money for a hotel. I slept the best I've ever slept. Took a long shower. The maid woke me up in the morning at like 8 a.m., but that's totally okay because I should have gotten up anyway. And then I started making plans for working on my bike, for fixing my bike, and for how I was going to spend the next month or so while my bike got fixed, while the holidays took place, I was going to be able to see my family, and while I made my actual plan for riding down into Mexico, and the next country, and the next country, and the next country. So, here I am today. Bike was just fixed the other day. I just paid the invoice. It's waiting for me, ready for me to come back and get on it. Half my gear is out there. Half my gear is here. I've spent time with family and with friends recently in order to recharge and get ready for this isolating and challenging and yet rewarding and lovely and still dangerous trip and I'm excited. I'm committed. I'm excited. I know I'm still going to encounter the unknown. I know I'm still going to encounter difficulty and challenges and I know I'm still going to be brought to a place of breaking and I might still break. I think I will still break but that is the person I want to be. That is the life I want to have lived because ultimately I would rather go chase the ridiculous the scary, the uncertain, the unknown, the unformed, 
the challenging aspects of this life than to forever spend my time hedging my bets, chasing security, comfort, and the next safest, surest, most comfortable and least challenging thing that I can find in life. The thing is, I don't believe that it's all about the massive, big, scary things in our lives. I think it comes down to the little decisions we make. Do we go up and talk to the beautiful woman sitting at the coffee shop table next to us? Do we share with the person in front of us that we actually care? Do we try to be honest with our loved ones on contentious topics that are going to cause conflict? Do we try to improve ourselves or do we take the easy path with least resistance and least friction? Ultimately, I believe there is beauty and gold and warmth and the unknown reward of the path of friction, of the path that's going to challenge and shape you and cut and bruise you, the path that forces you to decide whether you're someone who's honest and straightforward or whether you're someone who hides the truth or shapes it to fit your narrative or avoids conflict, whether you're someone who says the difficult things, brings up the topics that need to be said, tries to heal old wounds, tries to be the person to to control themselves in any given situation, whether you're the person who pushes themselves into the unknown because you know there's something more that you want, because you know there's something more that you can have, and yet you're you have to make that decision. Am I going to maintain the path of least resistance, or am I going to push into the potentially painful and dark and lonely and isolating path that ultimately leads you to become the better person that you could be? That's why I'm doing this. That's why I continue to do this. That's why I continue to pivot and change and put up resources and time and commitment to this ride to Argentina, because to me, this is one example of the small decisions that we can make every day in our lives to push ourselves to be the better version of ourselves that we know that we're capable of being and yet oftentimes we don't chase. I hope my journey is an example to some of you of perhaps small ways in your own life that you can push yourself down that path of the unknown, of friction, of pain, and yet of a deeper, more meaningful, more true, more beautiful reward than any other path you could live with your life. Until next time, this is Jeremiah Barnett, your host, I can say that now because I have a podcast, of The Roadrunner Show, where we talk about my journey to Argentina and beyond. Nice. Love is a baked sweet potato.